0: Section seventy five of the Mysteries of London, volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Mysteries of London, volume three, by George W. M. Reynolds. The History of Tim the Snammer. Part three. Next day I went out and remained absent until night. When I came home again, I said that I had obtained work, at the rate of two shillings a day, and was to be paid every evening. So I laid two shillings on the table. I forgot to observe that the purse contained about eleven pounds in gold and silver, and I was determined to dole it out in such a way that Marion should not suspect me of deceiving her. As often as the jail regulations would permit, she visited her husband, for the little comforts which I was now able to provide for her restored her strength in a trifling degree, at all events sufficiently so to enable her to drag her drooping form along to the dungeon, which held all she deemed most dear. Only once did I see George before the day of his trial, for Marian preferred to visit him alone. He was greatly affected at beholding us together, and thanked me for my kindness towards his sister. At last, after the lapse of about three months, the Assizes commenced— and on the second day the trial came on george had counsel to defend him for i supplied the means from the purse having invented some tale to account for the possession of the requisite sum to fee the barrister so that marian was satisfied it was with the greatest difficulty that i could persuade her to remain at home during the proceedings at which i was compelled to be present as a witness I need not detail all the particulars of the evidence given against my unhappy brother-in-law, circumstances all told in his disfavour, and the observation which he had let slip, I shall do another murder, was made the most of by the counsel for the prosecution. I was examined, and I swore that I had quitted the prisoner at the lime-kiln, at a quarter to ten, on the night in question. It was proved that it was not until past ten, That the gamekeeper accompanied the squire to the neighbourhood of the fatal place and therefore no questions were put likely to embarrass me the counsel for the defence argued most ingeniously in george's favour but the judge summed up against him the jury did not deliberate ten minutes and the verdict was guilty george was standing in the dock all the time that the jury were whispering together and when the foreman pronounced his doom and a slight muscular twitching of the lips was the only sign of emotion the judge put on the black cap and sentenced him to death in the usual horrible terms i must confess that though i had but little room in my soul for reflection of any kind so much was it occupied with the one dreadful fact of the day i shuddered and looked with loathing upon the judge to hear that old man himself having one foot in the grave uttering such a disgusting cruel and inhuman sentence as this you shall be taken back to the place whence you came and thence to a place of execution where you shall be hanged by the neck until you are dead then when man has done his worst and will not forgive nor attempt to reform the criminal the awful atrocity concludes with the damnable mockery and may the lord have mercy upon your soul i call it a mockery because it is insulting to heaven to invoke that pity and compassion which human beings so positively refuse but then the old judge was a mere mouthpiece through which the bloodthirsty law spoke and he was compelled to do a duty for which he was so well paid still i loathed that old man who could sell his feelings for money and who could be allured by the temptation of a large income to undertake an office which constrained him to doom his fellow-creatures to die the deaths of mere dogs. I wondered whether he could sleep comfortably in his bed afterwards, and I thought at the time that I would sooner be the veriest beggar, crawling on the face of the earth, than a judge with all his money, all the respect shown to him, and all his titles of lordship. But I have wandered away from my subject. Poor George was removed from the dock. I mean, he accompanied the turnkeys back to the jail, for he walked as firmly as I could do at this moment. I now had a most dreadful duty to perform, to convey the result to Marion. But I hastened back to her, fearful lest she should learn that result from lips which might not break the horrible tidings slowly to her. When I entered the garret where I had left her, I found her on her knees, praying aloud and fervently, The sight was too much for me and i burst into tears she rose slowly took me by the hand and said tim dear tim you need not attempt to break it gently to me as i know you have come to do i feel something tells me indeed that it is all over and i have been long prepared for this awful moment i have never allowed myself to indulge in vain hopes the world i was convinced would persecute my poor husband until it drove him to—but I cannot, cannot say where. That he was guilty of the deed, Tim, I have known all along, and dreadful as that deed was, I could not reproach him for it. He was goaded to desperation by wrong heaped upon wrong, and instead of being treated as a criminal, he should be looked upon as a victim himself. Marian had spoken, with an unnatural calmness, which made me tremble, lest her reason was deserting her but when she had concluded her address to me, she threw herself into my arms, and burst into a violent flood of weeping. I endeavoured to console her. She grew frantic. The command which she had maintained over herself throughout that dreadful day, and in the solitude of that garret, had tried her powers of endurance too severely, and now that her long pent-up anguish burst forth, it was awful in the extreme. "'Oh, my God!' I exclaimed, What have we done that we should be thus tortured on earth, as if we were in hell? And then I thought of the crime I had committed in appropriating the contents of the purse to my own use, and I felt ashamed. But in a few moments other feelings came over me. It struck me that there was no use in being good. Old Dalton, my father, my mother, poor Marion, and, until the date of that one deed, myself none of us had ever been wicked, and yet how awfully had we suffered. The three first had positively been killed by misfortune. And George, too, there was not a more upright, honourable, generous-hearted man in existence than he, until oppression and cruel wrong wrought a change in his nature. Such were my thoughts, and again I asked myself, what was the use of being good? From that moment, I determined to do as I saw the world doing around me. The execution was fixed for the second Thursday after the trial, which took place on a Tuesday, and during the interval, Marion saw her husband three times. I accompanied her on each occasion, for I was afraid to allow her to venture out alone. George maintained his courage in an astonishing manner, but never alluded to the crime in our presence. He showed the greatest affection towards his wife, and the warmest attachment for me, and implored her not to give way more than she could help to grief on his account. The third interview was on the evening previous to the fatal day, and that was heart-rending indeed. Marion, no longer resigned and enduring, was absolutely frantic, and she was borne away raving wildly from the condemned cell. I managed to get her home and some female lodgers in the same house put her to bed. A surgeon was sent for, and he pronounced her to be in the greatest danger. I sat up with her all that night, throughout which she slept at intervals, awaking to rave after her dear murdered husband. Had she not been my sister, I never could have supported the horrors of that awful night. Towards morning she seemed quite exhausted, and fell into a deep slumber. The execution was to take place at twelve precisely, and I hoped, sincerely hoped, that she might sleep until all should be over. Hour after hour passed. Eleven o'clock struck, and still she slept. Every now and then she started, convulsively, and murmured the name of her husband. Oh, how anxiously did I then wait for the chimes that proclaimed the quarters! And how slowly went the time! Poor George! What are your feelings now? I kept repeating to myself. Quarter past half past eleven, a quarter to twelve, these had all struck, and still she slept. As I sat by her bedside, I could hear the rushing crowds in the street below, and I also heard all the lodgers hastening down the steps to witness the execution. But still Marion slept, and in the bitterness of my own grief, this circumstance was a slight consolation. At length the chimes announced the hour, the fatal hour. Scarcely had they done playing when Marion awoke with a sudden start and raised herself to a sitting posture in the bed. Wildly she glanced around and again she started fearfully as the chimes being over, the clock began to strike the hour. One, two, three, she began. In a tone of piercing anguish and on she went counting the strokes till her tongue had numbered twelve my god tis the hour she exclaimed with a dreadful shriek then extending her arms wildly she cried i come george i come and fell back heavily in the bed as if shot through the heart she was no more it appeared that the drop fell about half a minute after the last stroke of twelve, and therefore, by a strange chance, poor George must have breathed his last, almost at the very instant, when Marion uttered those words so wildly, I come, I come. Thus died my persecuted brother-in-law and my poor sister, and I was now left alone, friendless, unprotected in the wide world. A strange whim now suddenly entered my head. I would bury the remains of the ill-fated couple in the same grave. Such was my idea, and so determined was I to carry it into execution, that I set out deliberately and calmly for the purpose of robbing someone to obtain the means for the purpose. When I got into the street I found the crowds dispersing after having witnessed the execution of my brother-in-law. How I loathed the inhuman creatures had shown such eager curiosity to view the last struggles of a man hung up like a dog by the bloodthirsty mandates of the law some were laughing and joking together as they walked along and such observations as these caught my ears how game he died didn't he that jack ketch is a devilish clever fellow at his business it was the best turn-off i have seen for a long time i propose that we don't go to work to-day let's make a holiday of it for my part i never fail to attend all executions that take place in the county and i always look upon it as a holiday just like easter monday or whit monday for instance what fun it was to see that old chap whom i bonneted in the crowd how he did curse and swear just as the parson was reading the last prayer on the scaffold i never had such a jolly good lark in my life I had my arm round Tom Tiffin's wife's waist all the time. What a precious sight of pickpockets there was in the crowd. These and a hundred other observations of the same kind met my ears as I walked along the streets, through which the people were returning from the execution. At length I passed the door of a public newsroom, and there several gentlemen were standing in conversation about the hideous spectacle, which one of them had witnessed and which this individual was describing with wonderful minuteness to his companions. I pretended to be looking at some pictures in the shop window, but was in reality surveying the group, thinking that one of them might become paymaster, though against his will, for the funeral of my sister and brother-in-law. "'You don't mean to say that the woman really did it?' cried one of the gentlemen. "'I mean to say,' answered the person who had witnessed the execution, that immediately after the criminal was dead or rather as soon as he had ceased to struggle the woman went up on the scaffold and the executioner put the murderer's hand upon her face to cure the king's evil and when she had gone down again a countryman ascended to the platform and was touched in the same way for a wen which he had got upon his head i saw it all myself well i could scarcely believe it said the other gentleman who had spoken i will lay you ten guineas exclaimed the one who had witnessed the execution that if you ask any other person who was present he will tell you the same thing and thus speaking the gentleman drew out his purse his friend however declined the wager and the purse was reconsigned to the pocket but not before i had seen enough of it to convince me that its contents were worth having i felt the less remorse in robbing that man because he had described, with such methodical cold-bloodedness, all the minute details of the execution, and availing myself of an opportunity when the group had got deep into a loud and excited discourse on the incidents of touching for the king's evil and the when, I managed to extract the purse, in even a far more skilful manner, than I had expected. The robbery was not immediately perceived, and I got clear away." On returning to my miserable garret, and by the side of the bed whereon lay the remains of my once beautiful and amiable sister, I counted the contents of the purse. Eleven guineas!' I murmured to myself, and as I glanced tremblingly at the corpse, it actually seemed to me at the moment as if an expression of deep gloom and sorrow suddenly passed over its countenance. "'Oh, my sister! My dear sister!' I cried. I HAVE DONE IT FOR YOUR SAKE. And then, unable to remain any longer, near one who seemed to reproach me even in death, I hurried away to the prison to claim the body of my brother-in-law. This request was granted without difficulty, and in the course of the day the husband and wife lay together upon the same bed, side by side, motionless, white, and cold, the former murdered by the law the latter by cruel wrong and diabolical oppression. The undertaker had received my instructions, and the preparations for the funeral were in progress. But two nights did I pass, in the same room with those dead bodies. For although I was afraid, yet something seemed to whisper to me within that it would be heartless and cruel to abandon even those inanimate remains until the grave should close over them. And as I sat by their side, While a candle burnt dimly on the table, I thought to myself, all this tremendous amount of sorrow, calamity, and woe has been caused by a wealthy and unprincipled landlord. Had it not been for Squire Bulkley, those two would still have been alive, and would have been happy, prosperous, and useful to society. But the tenant, or the small landowner, has no chance against the proprietor of great estates if the latter chooses to be a tyrant. The herring has as much right as the whale to swim in the waters which God has made, and yet the whale swallows up the herring. So is it with the great and the small landholder. Well, the funeral took place, and there were four mourners, one real and three sham. The real one was myself. The three sham were the undertaker and two of his dependents. Nevertheless, my aim was accomplished, george and his wife slept in the same grave and the money of a man who had greedily devoured the hideous spectacle of public strangulation had served to bury them in spite of my grief i chuckled at this idea it seemed something like retributive justice i had now no object in staying at winchester and with eleven shillings in my pocket i set out to walk to london During my journey I passed the chalk-pit where the dreadful deed had taken place. I passed it purposely, because I now wanted to harden my mind as much as possible, for I saw it was no use for a poor, friendless orphan like me to think of being honest. In the most civilised country, as it is called, in the world, I had seen such abominable acts of oppression perpetrated, under colour of law, that I envied those naked savages in islands a great way off, of whom I had read in books, for I thought that it was better to be barbarians without the pretense of civilization than to be barbarians with that pretense. I had heard a great deal said by my father, by old Mr. Dalton, and also by the clergyman from the pulpit, about the paternal nature of the English government, but I now began to perceive that it had been mere delusion on the part of my well-meaning parent and Mr. Dalton, and rank hypocrisy and wanton deception on the part of the parson. All I could now think of the paternal government was that it favoured institutions by means of which poor men might be driven to desperation, and then they were coolly and quietly hanged, for the deeds, to the perpetration of which they had been so goaded, I began to look upon the English people as the most chicken-hearted and contemptible nation in the world for allowing the aristocracy to ride roughshod over them, whereas the great and high-minded French people, as I had read in books, had risen up like one man and overthrown their aristocracy altogether. But let me continue my history. Having passed by the chalk-pit, the fatal chalk-pit, I visited the immediate neighbourhood of the farmhouse, where a happy family had once dwelt, my own. Now it was tenanted by strangers. I went on and came to the house to which George Dalton had borne my sister Marion, a blooming bride. That tenement was now deserted, and it struck horror to my heart to observe, or rather to feel, that death-like silence which pervaded a place where the joyous laugh of George Dalton and the musical voice of my dear sister had once been heard. O God, that so much misery should have fallen upon two families, who strove so hard to live honestly and in peace with all mankind. The tears streamed down my face as I turned back into the high road, and pursued my way towards London. I now thought, as I went along, that if I could, possibly, obtain honest employment in the great city, honest I would endeavour to remain. I say remain, because, although I had committed two thefts, yet I was far from being utterly depraved. The tears which painful remembrances had called forth had softened my heart, and the image of my lamented sister appeared to urge me to virtue. Armed with this resolution, I proceeded towards the metropolis. It was evening when, after two days' fatiguing journey, I entered London, and put up at a miserable lodging-house, in the window of which I saw a bill stating that single men might have a bed for fourpence a night. Eight hours' good rest gave me strength and spirits to begin my search after employment. I went into the city and inquired at several warehouses if a light porter was wanted. Having met with many refusals, and being wearied with walking about, I went into a public house to get some refreshment and happening to mention my situation to the landlord he very kindly recommended me to apply at a certain warehouse which he named and where he knew that a porter was wanted i did so and was fortunate enough to succeed in obtaining the place with a salary of twelve shillings a week i commenced my new avocation on the following morning and exerted myself to the utmost to obtain the good opinion of my master i was regular in the hours of attendance and frequently remained behind at the office when the clerks had departed to finish the labours which had been assigned to me in the morning i was economical and prudent in my expenditure and the pittance which i received was ample to keep myself at the expiration of four months from the time when i first entered this establishment i had entirely gained the confidence of my employer my salary was increased and i began to think that fortune was once more inclined to smile upon me when a circumstance occurred which convinced me that the long lane of life had not yet taken a turn. My employer one morning desired me to proceed to a particular address, at the west end of the town, and insist upon the payment of a bill, which in the course of business had fallen into his hands, and which had been protested. I instantly set out for the place intimated, and having inquired for the gentleman, whose name was familiar enough to me, though I could not suspect the identity which proved to be the case. I was shown into an elegant apartment, where a gentleman was sitting with his face to the fire and his back to the door, smoking a cigar. "'Who the devil's that?' demanded the occupant of the room, without turning his head, but in a voice which was not unknown to me. "'If you're a done, I ain't at home.' "'I have called for payment,' I began. "'Hullo. Who have we here?' ejaculated the gentleman, and, rising from his chair, he disclosed the features of the magistrate who had first committed George Dalton for poaching. "'What, Tim splint?' he cried. "'Is this you?' "'It is I, the brother-in-law of the man whom you helped to persecute,' I returned, equally surprised at this unexpected encounter. "'No impudence, my good fellow,' said the magistrate, very coolly, "'or else I shall be compelled to kick you out of the room.' "'But what vulgar thing have you got in your hand there?' "'A bill with your name to it, and the payment of which I am come to require,' was my immediate answer. "'Oh, that's it, is it?' ejaculated the magistrate, casting his eyes over the document which I displayed to his view. "'Well, let me see. How shall I pay this? In bank-notes? Or by kicking you out of the house? Or by recommending the holder to read his bill again this day six months?' Oh, I have it! And sitting down to an elegant writing-table, he penned a hasty note, sealed it, and desired me to give it to the person who had sent me. I then withdrew, anxious to avoid a dispute which would be perfectly useless, and which would probably prejudice the interests of my employer. I returned to the office in the city, and delivered the note. The merchant opened it, and his countenance changed as he perused its contents. For some moments he remained absorbed in thought, and then, apparently acting in obedience to a sudden impulse, passed the note to me, who had been anxiously watching the strange demeanour of my master. The letter contained the following words. Mr. would be much obliged to the holder of his acceptance for a hundred and sixty-eight pounds if he would forbear from sending the brother of a man who has been hanged to demand the amount as such persons are by no means welcome at the abode of mr blank, however well they may suit the holder of his bill the meaning of this request would be ascertained where the porter timothy splint questioned as to his connection with the murderer george dalton i folded up the letter returned it to my employer and said i cannot deny the truth of its contents but i am innocent although my poor brother-in-law died on the scaffold you should have been candid at the commencement interrupted my employer firmly but mildly whether you are innocent or not matters not now had you told me your real position when you first came to me i should have admired your frankness and given you a fair trial as it is we must part at once i attempted to justify my silence respecting the ignominious end of my relative but the merchant was inexorable in his determination not to hear anything in the shape of an explanation he paid me the wages due to me with a sovereign over and dismissed me i forthwith began to look after a new situation and i remembered the parting words of the merchant whom i had left resolving to be candid in the first instance when soliciting a new place my duties at my recent situation had compelled me to visit other mercantile firms on many occasions, and I had formed the acquaintance of several of the persons employed in those establishments. To some of them I repaired, to ascertain where vacancies were to be filled up, and having obtained a considerable list, I set out upon a round of applications. The first house I inquired at was that of a general merchant and warehouseman, who required a porter and collector of moneys? "'Have you ever served in that capacity before?' was the first demand. "'I was in the employ of a highly respectable merchant,' I returned, mentioning his name, whose service I only left a few days ago. "'I remember that you were engaged there. I thought your face was familiar to me,' said the merchant. "'And I also recollect that I heard you spoken of in the highest possible terms,' he continued. Indeed, you were represented to me as being invaluable in your particular department. But, of course, you did not leave your late employer for any misconduct on your part. Not at all, sir, was my answer. I must, however, explain a certain circumstance. Well, I will just send round, merely for the form's sake, you know, and ascertain that it is all right. And if you will call to-morrow morning, I have no doubt I shall be enabled to give you a favourable answer.' I must really, sir, said I, speak to you very seriously for a moment before you take any trouble on my behalf. If you will have the kindness to listen to me, I shall explain my real position. The truth is, though perfectly innocent of any crime myself, I have the misfortune to be related to a persecuting man who was driven by despair to commit a deed for which he suffered on the scaffold. The scaffold? ejaculated the merchant in dismay. "'Yes, sir,' I continued, hastily endeavouring to give a full explanation. "'And if you will but permit me to tell you in a few words the melancholy history, "'you will see no reason to be displeased with my candour. "'On the contrary, you will, I am sure, pity me, sir.' "'I thank you for such candour. interrupted the merchant, "'buttoning up his breeches' pockets and locking his desk.' But I regret that, under circumstances, I cannot think of taking you into my service. "'But do pray listen to me, sir,' I exclaimed. "'You are doubtless a man of sense, of justice, and of impartiality, and I appeal to you—' "'My good young man, it is no use to take up my time,' interrupted the merchant impatiently. "'I am certainly not going to receive you into my service under existing circumstances.' I was compelled to take my departure. I left the house ashamed and abashed, fearful that my evil doom was sealed, afraid to look those whom I met in the face, and fancying that every one seemed to know who and what I was. But a few moments' reflection taught me to believe that I had no reason to anticipate failure everywhere, because I had met with a repulse in one place. I accordingly proceeded to another establishment, where a light porter was also required. The head of this firm was a venerable old man, with long grey hair falling over his coat-collar, a bald head, and a huge pair of silver spectacles on his nose. There was altogether something so kind, so unassuming, and so philanthropic, in the appearance of this individual, that I was immediately inspired with confidence. I began my narrative, and related the main incidents, without interruption from my hearer, listen to me with the greatest attention and apparent interest. My good young man, said the merchant, taking off his spectacles and wiping them, I feel deeply for you. Every word which you have told me I firmly believe. Your manner and your language inspire me with confidence. Merciful God, into what a state would society be plunged if innocence, that had been wronged? could not obtain the credence of those to whom it offered its justification. I repeat, I am interested in you. I feel deeply for you. You have had your share of misfortune, poor young man. Most sincerely do I hope that your future prospects will not be equally embittered. I have a son of just your age. He has gone to the East Indies in a free trader, in which I have a share. And if it were only for his sake, I should feel interested in you for you resemble him in person. Heaven, what a world this is! Why, man is a cannibal in a moral sense, for he is constantly devouring his fellow man. Upon my word I could weep, I could shed tears, when I think of the misfortunes which you have endured. I am overcome by your kind sympathy, said I now certain that this time I had encountered the man who would not allow my misfortunes to stand in the way of my appointment to the vacant situation. "'How much did you receive per week at your last place?' asked the old gentleman. I named the sum. "'And what hours did you keep?' This question I also answered. "'Was your master kind and considerate?' proceeded the venerable merchant, in a compassionate tone of voice. He was very kind in his manners, but at parting he behaved harshly and ungenerously when he discovered all I have just told you, and I think I had reason to complain. "'Ah, it was cruel, it was ungenerous,' said the venerable old gentleman, musing. "'But don't you see,' he added, "'that as society is at present constituted, "'and I admit that its constitution is vitiated in the extreme,' It is impossible for a man who depends upon the world, for his subsistence, to act contrary to the received notions and usual habits of that world. Now, for my part, I should be glad, I should be delighted, to take you in a moment. But I dare not. I am very sorry, but I really would strain a point to serve you, if I possibly could. You may suppose that I was astonished at this announcement. I had made sure of the situation from the first moment that the old merchant had addressed me, and I now saw my hopes cruelly and fatally defeated. With a heavy heart I went away, and the tears ran down my cheeks, as I reflected upon all I had just heard. Never did my situation in the world appear more lonely, never more truly desperate. My position was too hopeless to allow me to apply at another mercantile establishment for upwards of an hour it required that interval to soothe and soften down my feelings and i then ventured into the warehouse of an export merchant upon a very extensive scale whose name was down upon my list i was introduced into the presence of a young man who wore a large blue figured satin stock with an enormous gold pin and a chain hanging over an elegant silk waistcoat this gentleman sat on one side of a desk and his partner who was dressed as well as he was occupied the other i immediately attracted their attention and the elder partner laying down his pen exclaimed why you're a devilish smart-looking fellow here sit down and take a glass of porter you seem tired by the by we haven't had our cigars yet dick he added addressing his partner Let's smoke, and talk over this business at the same time. Sit down, my man. We have no humbug about us, I can tell you. And so indeed it appeared, for the two gentlemen produced cigars and bottled porter, and I was very soon engaged in a most comfortable chat with them. At length they began to speak about the business which had taken me there, and when I told them my story, in a straightforward manner, they declared with an oath that they would take me on my word and that they didn't want any damned reference or anything of that kind the terms were agreed upon and i was to commence my duties on the following morning when i took my leave the two partners shook hands with me expressing their conviction that i was a damned good fellow and understood what was what and also that i was just the kind of bird they had some time been looking for i accordingly entered on this new place but i had not been there long before i began to notice though i was regularly paid that a great many persons called for money and never could obtain a settlement of their accounts on some occasions the partners were denied although they were in the counting-house drinking and smoking and then the applicants were very much disposed to be insolent making use of such terms as swindlers rogues and so on some would express their conviction that it was all a regular do while others felt equally certain that it was nothing but a plant there was also another circumstance which astonished me and that was the singular mode in which the business of the firm was conducted no sooner did the bales of goods arrive by the front door than they were carried out at the back and sent away in vans altogether it was a most extraordinary firm and one morning i discovered that the doors were closed the partners had bolted and the city officer was inquiring after them in consequence of a warrant which he had with him for their apprehension thus i lost a place where the duties were easy but where the respectability attached to it was not very likely to increase my own i was thus thrown once more upon the world and again was i compelled to look out for a situation i applied at numerous warehouses and offices but when i stated my real condition when I revealed the secret that I was related to a man who had been hanged, I was thrust from the doors of some, reproached for my impertinence in calling by others, and treated with coolness, or contempt, by a third set of them. No one seemed to believe that I could possibly be honest. Day after day saw the renewal of disappointment, and that sickening at the heart which leads to despair. Night after night did I return to my lodging, to meet a landlady who wanted the money I owed her. At last, she would have no further patience, and one night when I went back late, she poked her head out of a window, desiring me to be gone, and loading me with abuse. I slunk away almost heartbroken at the treatment I had just received, and at the deplorable situation to which I was reduced. Accident, or rather necessity, conducted me back to the low lodging-house at which I had put up on my first arrival in London, and there I fell in with some persons who were very willing to assist me in a certain way. In fact, they proposed that I should join them in a robbery which they were arranging, and after vainly struggling with my better feelings, I consented. It is no use to tell you how I got on from bad to worse, You can both very well guess how it is that when once a man gets regularly into this line he seldom or ever gets out of it again till his career is cut short by transportation or the scaffold thus terminated tim the snammer's history which as we stated at the conclusion of the preceding chapter we have greatly modified in style and changed in language without however omitting altering or exaggerating any one incident nor any one sentiment it was now late and the snammer took his leave of josh pedler and matilda briggs having promised to call again next day and arrange with the former the contemplated robbery of old death end of section seventy five